Welcome, and thanks for listening to AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Today's episode is Soil Talk from the Ground Up. Here's your host, Laura Hankey. All right. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us back here on a beautiful Friday morning. We are so excited this morning to be here with, as Brian said, Dr. Christine Nichols. Uh, If you follow regenerative agriculture um, or you've even been involved in the space at all, you're surely familiar with her name. Chris, thanks so much for joining us here this morning. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm definitely excited for this conversation. Um, We've had a chance to visit now a couple of times, and um, I'm excited to share with our listeners everything that you have to offer in the space of regenerative agriculture. So to get us started here this morning, Chris, tell us a little bit about your background in ag. You're no stranger to the field of agriculture from a young age, I understand. Yes, uh, my dad actually purchased the farm that my family lives on the year I was born. So basically my whole entire life, uh, my dad has owned a farm in southwestern Minnesota. And um, we've it's primarily a, a grain farm in southwestern Minnesota. Um, you know, uh, it, it's been something that we've managed ourselves as a family, as many farms are managed with, with the family. So growing up um, was no stranger to... Uh, emptying wagons and doing those types of things. Um, when I decided then to go to, to university, I went to the University of Minnesota and um, kind of part of my, my main journey into regenerative agriculture and soil health, although it started with being on the farm, really kind of happened at the University of Minnesota, where I, I tell people I basically fell in love with a fungus when I was 19 years old, and I have yet to fall out of love with uh, said fungus. I've fell in love with our vascular mycorrhizal fungi, and just seeing what soil biology can do and how essential that is to soil itself and soil health was was really what what drove me through undergrad and graduate school. And uh, I did graduate school in Maryland uh, and West Virginia, but then moved back to the upper Midwest uh, and the Northern Great Plains to do some work in North Dakota for the USDA Agriculture Research Service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we are certainly grateful that you fell in love with a fungus, Chris, because that love has contributed so much. So talk a little bit about being on the front lines there in North Dakota of regenerative agriculture and helping those farmers work through some of those issues. Yeah, I think, you know, I got really lucky as far as timing was concerned, because this was a time in which there were a lot of stressors, as there always are in farming and ranching. But um, in the Northern Great Plains, where it's a semi-arid environment, and you're you're working in a system that's, that's under a lot of stress, uh, as far as, you know, the farmers and ranchers, but also the, the soil itself, under the stress with some lack of moisture. And so they were looking for other ways to be able to address that. Uh, Crop fallow had been used for years and was a recommended practice, but they were seeing that you weren't really building up the soil and the soil health and really being able to achieve the things that they wanted to be able to achieve. And so uh, it became this, uh, I said I got really lucky because it became this learning process for both of us where I came at it originally from an academic background and falling in love with the fungus and what I had learned at university to now being back on the ground with farmers and ranchers and them posing these questions from their observations that 
I didn't have the entire answers to, but it was a great way to kind of play off of each other and learn and expand that information for both of us. Right. And when you say both of us, you're talking about Gabe Brown, right? Um, You guys were kind of in this together, learning at the same time. Yeah, I I was able to work with some of these original leaders, uh, Gabe Brown being one of them. Um, I was positioned in Bismarck Mandan area. So um, working with uh, Jay Fear and and the Minokan farm, Mm -hmm. um, Kenny Miller, Gene Govan as a a rancher. So a lot of the people who were really leading um, these ideas and these concepts in uh, regenerative agriculture and soil health. So what were some of these ideas and concepts that you were helping these farms to implement to find some profitability in these tough times? Well, the, the first thing, again, in, in soil health is to really focus on the soil. So when we're looking at a regenerative approach, it really is regenerating the soil. And when I think of regenerative agriculture, it is a, a systems approach. It is a dynamic, innovative, integrated, intensive systems approach and each of those words has a meaning it's in and of themselves, but also a meaning in an integrated manner where you're taking the systems approach. So you're really looking at kind of all trophic levels um, and really looking from the microscopic to the macroscopic. And so, you know, they would see some things going on as they changed um, some of their grazing practices to more uh, adaptive multi-paddock types of grazing practices, um, increasing uh, the number of animals, the stocking density um, or stocking rate, uh, and doing short duration types of grazing. Um, Again, working with uh, Gene Govan, who had worked with Neil Dennis, who had led some of this uh, up in Canada. And and so um, you would see these differences in the level of productivity that didn't always make sense when with the things that you had learned initially, because uh, they were seeing that instead of being in a crop fallow system, they could go to a, a no-till system where they're doing cropping every year and starting to even look at including cover crops. Uh, and how do you do that in a semi-arid environment? If plants right. need water, now I'm telling you and, and we're working with it and seeing that we can actually be more intensive and have more plants growing. And what sense does that make? But um, what we started to see is this concept of plant to plant nutrient exchange and plant to plant kind of language that the plants were supporting each other. And before in our classic thinking, it was, you know, you didn't want to have competition because competition was going to steal water and nutrients. Mm -hmm. But now we're looking at competition differently in trying to be able to see that we can have plants that are actually going to assist each other in being able to address those issues that they need to have to flourish in these environments that um, are rather fragile environments and can typically be low productivity environments. To make them high productivity environments, we need to be able to work with how the plants are going to be working with each other. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about competition, that's really where the fallow comes in, isn't it? Is leaving your ground out of any type of crop for a year and, and maybe even going a step further and, and killing any vegetation that might grow on that just to store up those nutrients and that moisture. 
So talk about how that works into a budget, Chris. I mean, how do you how do you ever account for two years and one year's crop? Well, and that's that's part of the thing that was going on in this environment was when you looked at crop fallow, again, it was a recommended practice research shows you know, green growing plants need water and nutrients. And so the more green growing plants that you have, the the less water and nutrients that you would have available. So they did studies where they showed that if you did crop fallow, um, the your your cropping year, you would see higher yields than if you did cropping every year. And um, so, you know, you it, it, it was something where they had done the research and shown that that it could that it could work. But the issue that was going on was, as you said, it's it's almost impossible economically. And so, you know, again, margins are always tight in, in agriculture. Um, and that's it's a difficult thing to be able to deal with. But the, the way that it was kind of compensated for in the Northern Great Plains was that land value would be relatively low. But um, as you would see uh, expansion, especially urban expansion and those types of things, it puts increasing pressure on land values. So land values start to go up and then, you know, the the margins that were already tight become impossible margins to be able to have to deal with. And so they they had to uh, necessity is always the mother of invention. And so these farmers and ranchers had to start exploring and looking for different things. And um, they, looking at, they actually went to a No Till on the Plains conference um, uh, down in Kansas, in mm-hmm. Salina, Kansas, and learned about um, some producers down in South America, Adamar Caligari, and what he was doing in these very dry environments. Uh, in in Chile and being able to see that you could actually do something that's different and thinking about being able to do these things that are different. Um, No-till was one of the first things that they incorporated into into the system. So the idea that you were helping to retain some of the moisture in the soil by not, as you said, in that fallow year, you didn't want plants growing. So you would go out there and use a combination frequently of uh, herbicides and tillage to be able to make sure that you're, you're killing plants. Which isn't plants, free. Which isn't free. <laughs> no, you know, neither of those are free. And, and so that was a cost. And you had to kind of account for that in getting a crop every other year. Um, and so it it was another it again it was just something that was in a perpetual cycle of adding stress and so they had to find these things that were different um and doing these practices that were going to help to retain soil moisture so no-till where you reduce the evaporation from the soil that that's happening when you don't have a plant that's growing there and when you're doing tillage that um allows for better, that allows for more evaporation of moisture from the soil. And um, so it was, it was really, again, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and timing is everything. And I I think that that was just, it was just a nexus of, of really great things that got to happen at the same time. And I was privileged to be a part of that. Right. Well, I've heard Gabe speak a couple of times and I've read his book and, you know, he alludes to the fact that 
he didn't start these practices next to the road. You guys were asking for a complete paradigm shift going from a year of fallow where you were actually working hard to kill everything there to keeping something growing on the ground 24, seven, 365. Talk about the kind of reception that you guys got initially, Chris. Well, you're, you're always, when, when you're doing things that are these paradigm shifts, you know, it's, it's one of the things there is a, a, coffee talk. I mean, there's there's a whole social aspect uh, to farming and ranching. And it's important to have that social aspect, having the peer-to-peer conversations, learning from each other. I, I, again, some of the best education that I got was not from university, but from working with farmers and ranchers, because it's that peer-to-peer education. So, you know, people would, people would see these practices going on and you would hide them from um, Gabe Brown Farms. Uh, part of his farm is on I-94, which is a major interstate going from the East Coast to the West Coast. And uh, he didn't do things initially on I-94 because you it, it's difficult with losing some of that social aspect. Um, and uh, one of the good things, too, about Gabe Brown and uh, many of the, the farmers and ranchers that were involved in this is they were able to create their own peer groups. So I brought up Jay Fear and uh, Burley County Soil Conservation District. Jay Fear worked for uh, the NRCS office uh, in Bismarck, but it was really the Soil Conservation District, the group of farmers that decided after they, you know, were in these stressful situations and heard of, um, at America Ligari and we're just like, you know what, we're, we're going to try this and we're going to create our own peer group. And I think that that's a, a really important thing for farmers and ranchers to be doing is mm-hmm. you, you create your own coffee shop talk. Right. And you're right. That's so powerful to have that peer-to-peer conversation. And I don't think any space does it any better than regenerative agriculture. It's not just a local network. It's not just a United States network. It really is a global network today. You know, and social media has really played an integral part in, in that. The last five years, it seems like, Chris, we've really heard a lot more about soil health, um, food security. Um, you know, food security has always been an issue that we hear about, but just the last five years, it seems like we've really started to hear a lot more about linking that to soil health. Why do you think that is? Well, again, you know, soil is essential to being able to grow food. Uh, Land is the only thing that really has intrinsic value. Um, I think the 2008 financial crisis taught us some of that, that, that land is the only thing that really has intrinsic value because it is being, it's the way that we get food. Um, in North America, in the United States in particular, we always, farmers and ranchers always said, you know, we have to feed the world. And that is something that we have done a good job of doing on some of the, the best land that exists on the planet right now. Um, but this, it wasn't the case that North America was the only place that had some of the best land. Um, You know, we've seen over time as civilizations have grown and expanded, being able to, and that's what food security is, is you'd see um, different uh, communities, um, the the Roman Empire, the the Greek Empire, the British Empire, uh, having to grow and expand outside of their own 
land space, geographical land space, because they needed to go out there and be able to get more food and obtain that food as their populations grew. And so it is one of those things where we we do need to be looking at the the soil to be able to provide food. And it's that linkage. Soil itself is carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen, organic matter bound to sand, silt, and clay. And we didn't just have soil from the beginning. It was something that was generated over time through the interactions of plants and animals, both microscopic and macroscopic. And as we generated soil, that is how we were able to get um, the high quality land that we have that we're producing food on and in order to be able to continue to produce food and provide that security especially again as we're looking at weather patterns that are increasingly inconsistent and uh, drought periods that are increasing that's a big part of food security and when we've shown that in a semi-arid environment we could go from crop fallow system to not just cropping every year, but also cover cropping, increasing stocking rates, all of those types of things that you wouldn't think that you could do in a water challenged environment. We're now learning so much more on how we can manage water and soil and how those are coupled together. If you manage soil, it helps you to manage water. If you manage water, it helps you to manage soil so that then you can be able to address those food insecurity needs that we have. Right. And and today we know we have hard evidence that regenerative agriculture can actually change the climate of a region. Um, you had mentioned um, the, the farmer or the rancher from, um, is it Mexico or South America? Uh, from South America, Adamar Caligari. Yes. Okay. And is yeah. he the one that, that has the 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 uh, expansive ranch operation that has changed the climate in his region? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're really looking, yeah, at these. Um, we we've never really tied well enough this idea of microclimates, but now we're starting to see that. I mean, you know, we see that with major, with large major events, you know, the the fires that we've seen that they create mm-hmm. microclimates that are, you know, creating these um, cyclones and, and other things that are happening. Um, but it is one of these things where that happens all the time on, on farms and ranches all over the world. And so we can really adjust that. Yeah. And agriculture has really gotten such a bad rap here the last few years of, you know, being on the negative side of climate change. But we really know today that we have the power to not just talk about climate change, but to really implement and impact climate change. Um, And so with that today, your work, I see my land, a logo there in in the, the top hand corner of your screen there. Your love for fungi has expanded to microalgae. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So when I think about, you know, Chris, when I think about food security and soil health, microalgae is probably not the first thing that comes to mind. (laughs) Should it be? Um, it should be, uh, you know, it, it, it is one of those things and, and what has, has fascinated me. Um, I too was not, I've, 
been a soil microbiologist for nearly 30 years. And I too was not one that, that microalgae came to the top of mind. I knew that they were in soils. Um, and what, what I do find really intriguing oftentimes too, is as we look at some of these challenge, more challenging environments, um, microalgae, even in these very dry environments is existing and playing some very critical roles in those environments. So my land, the, the company that I work with now is based out of Arizona and is working with farmers in the uh, desert Southwest and in these very dry, arid to semi-arid environments. And again, that's not where you think of, of algae. Um, well, it's, what a great place to prove a concept. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so it really is this, these, these keystone organisms, again, what I really like about microalgae, like with the work I was doing with arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, is they're, they're sort of these keystone microorganisms that work in consortia with a number of other organisms. So the activity that they have isn't just the things they're doing for themselves, but in being able to address their own needs, they actually have to work with a number of different organisms because it's this community and the consortia that really is driving the functions that we need to be able to see. And so um, being able to uh, work with Mylan and see how these things are really functioning and addressing some of those critical issues, as I said, with water and nutrient management, but also with soil structure in and of itself, which is really important to water and nutrient management. So talk about how the process works, Chris. How do you get the microalgae where it needs to be when it needs to be there? Uh, so what Myland has done is they have developed a very innovative uh, process for create. They created these bioreactors that are very innovative, where they can build up a high density solution of microalgae, and then um, utilizing technology, they've been able to integrate it in where you can have in these bioreactors utilizing water from the farm that you're on. Um, we have a process where we're going to uh, sterilize that water so we don't have contaminants of other microorganisms coming in to the bioreactor, but that water from the farm is going to uh, provide the water for being able to culture the high-density solutions of microalgae. And then um, automatically the, the system is designed to be able to feed that high density solution of microalgae into an irrigation system. And again, with um, looking at, at microalgae, uh, when we're, when Myland is, the Myland team is looking at selecting the microalgae, we select the microalgae that is native or indigenous to the, the farm. So it is going to be adapted to that climate and that environment. And that's something that through research we've found is really important with both mycorrhizal fungi as well as uh, microalgae because they're able to work with the consortia that exists there. And then um, be able to inject that microalgae solution through irrigation systems and working, it, it isn't one, again, with the, the 
microalgae that we're choosing. It is a single cell um, modal microalgae, so we can put it through a number of different types of irrigation types of systems. So we can do flood irrigation, uh, drip irrigation, subterranean or overhead, um, a, a, a number of different types of systems um, that you can have that would be out there. Right. So. In my research leading up to this conversation, I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about microalgae. It, it seems like microalgae is like a fully furnished condo for these bio consortia uh, interactions to occur. Um, is that a right? Is that a correct analogy? It is. It's a very good analogy. Um, you know, one of the things, again, going back to soil, soil is this organic matter, carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And where where the carbon, hydrogen and oxygen comes from, that organic matter comes from, is photosynthetic organisms. And so the microalgae are microscopic plants, um, which is basically allowing for that photosynthetic organism, that carbon influx to be able to come into the soil environment. Right. So it really is that ready-made type of environment. So you guys are extracting this microalgae directly from the farms that you are implementing it back on, correct? Does it matter where the microalgae comes from? Or is it best to do do it from or to extract it from the, the soil that it's going back into? It is better to do it from the soil that it goes back into because, again, they're adapted then to that environment. Um, one, you know, you wouldn't want to take microalgae uh, that you collected from a, a farmer ranch in Kansas or in North Dakota, um, or I, I now I'm in um, Alberta um, in Canada, and apply that to, even though we're in semi-arid environments, apply that to an arid environment in the desert Southwest. Mm -hmm. uh, it needs to be adapted to the, the different temperatures that are in that environment and, you know, vice versa. So it's best to be able to do that, but not just um, adapted to the, the climatic factors that exist there, the temperatures and the moisture, but also adapted to being working with uh, the different types of microorganisms that, that are there, you know, talking about this sort of condo concept that you have, if, if you had, had a, had a condo that you basically had, um, is set up for a in in the southwest that you had um the heating system you didn't have an air conditioning system because you had it set up for something that was going to be right. in a northern climate you know that that's one thing that's there but then you also had um living conditions that weren't really well established for that, not just for the climate, but for the moisture and for working with the different organisms. So, you know, instead you had, again, not air conditioning, you had a, a environment that had, you know, a lot of blankets and heavy furniture and all of those types of things. Right. And then, you know, you try and bring your friends over and it's just everybody feels uncomfortable <laughs> because it isn't the environment that you would expect coming into there. And so that you don't know how to, you, friends come over and you don't know how to talk or, you know, interact. And that's mm -hmm. what's happening in the soil environment is that, you know, the, the friends can come over, the different microorganisms can interact and they know how to talk to each other. It's not that you couldn't learn, but that learning time is, is, cash time. It is, it does right. have an economic stress when you need to have. Well, and how learning. much more productive are you when you're comfortable? 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, it's yeah. so exciting what we're learning about the microbiome. It seems like we're learning something new every week. Um, just to think about where we were five years ago, 10 years ago, I mean, leaps and bounds every year. So you're actually doing some work today that is at the intersection of human health and soil health. Talk a little bit about what you're learning about the human gut microbiome as compared to the soil microbiome, Chris. Well, again, you know, what, what fascinates me so much about microorganisms is that they do the the necessary jobs they do what they have to do they're they are really on that critical edge if you have to do what you have to do to survive and what really is interesting between the what's happening in the soil and how those microorganisms are contributing to the functions in the soil and to the the nutritive value of the um, food that we're producing from that soil environment then interplays with what the gut microbiome needs. So it's not that they're the same microorganisms, they're not the same species, and they don't have the same types of biochemistry uh, in the gut. It is a um, acidic uh, anaerobic environment. And so it's, it's not the same type of an environment that you have in the soil, but many of the functional roles and activities, what the gut microbiome does is provide for the elemental nutrients. They work together on being able to provide for those elemental nutrients that we that animals need, ourselves included, um, in order to be able to live. Uh, when I when I talk to people sometimes, and you know, this may not be an appropriate conversation for for coffee talk, but um, you know, when we're when we're consuming food, when any animal consumes food, that isn't what goes into our bloodstream, and that isn't what it's not that food directly that goes into our bloodstream and provides the um, building blocks for our biochemistry and for our physical structure and activities, but it is actually the, the waste products that are produced by the gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is happening in the soil environment that the microorganisms there are working on the organic matter. They're working on um, soil minerals to break those down and um, take those elements and put them into forms that the plants are able to absorb. And so, you know, the plants can't take all of the different types of forms of, of uh, elemental nutrients from the soil until they've been processed by the soil microbiome. We can't absorb the elemental nutrients that are in the food that we consume until it's processed by the gut microbiome. So both the plants and animals are essentially feeding off of the waste of the microbiome in the environment that they're either growing in or in the environment that lives within them. And so those those types of similarities are existing. And the other thing that those microorganisms do in both the soil environment as well as the gut environment is that they help to form some of the building blocks uh, in the soil environment for the antioxidants and polyphenolics and other phytochemicals that it is that we need to be having um, in in our food as animals and so they help the plants to be able to get those building blocks to be able to form those compounds and will stimulate the formation of those compounds that's what's happening in the soil microbiome but it's 
then they provide those resources to the gut microbiome. And it's a way of being able to do the whole full cycle, Um, you know, and that's, that's the important element of it is it's sort of, uh, I tell people, you know, it's a microbial world and we just live here and the microbes are basically driving all of our activity, the microbes in the soil, driving the activity of the plants and animals. They're our gut microbiome driving our activity and being able to provide those nutrients. So really, I mean, when we think about um, farming today, we're farming microbes. You know, microbes are what we need to grow the crop. They're the ones doing all of the work. So we just need to, to stand back and enable them to do what they need to do. Exactly. We're just, we're, like I said, it's a microbial world and we just live here. We're sort of the caretakers of that process um, of, of the microbes and their activities going from the soil to, to our guts. And, and so, you know, when I was more starting to work with going back to where we started on starting to talk about, uh, Gabe Brown and, and the farmers and ranchers in, in North Dakota, when I started working with them, you know, one of the things that I thought was really great was several of them would say, well, you know, they've realized that as ranchers, they're not, raising cattle, they're raising forage. And I said, no, you know, you need to take this one step further. You're actually growing soil. And even one step further from that, we're harvesting sunlight. So when I've talked with farmers and ranchers more recently, it's, it's, that's your crop. Your cash crop is sunlight. How you go about harvesting that sunlight and those what what it is that you're doing is really going to be driving the plants and the animals are tools for that harvest of sunlight because that's where the energy and the building blocks for pretty much all life on this planet come from. And that's what it is that is bringers of food that farmers and ranchers are, that givers of food that farmers and ranchers are, it is that harvest of sunlight and that energy and those building blocks. Absolutely. Well, Chris, I could talk to you all day. Um, There's so many more questions (laughs) I have about rotational grazing and bricks testing and all of the things that we should all know. (laughs) But I think we're probably going to have to wrap it up here pretty quickly. Um, Do we have any questions from any of our guests this morning? And Chris, while we're waiting on questions to come in, any final thoughts here this morning um, in regards to what we've talked about and, and food security in general? Um, I guess I would just really encourage uh, farmers and ranchers as well as consumers to, you know, get back to realizing what comes from the land and that soil resource and to be able to be cultivating that soil resource. Whatever you can do to be a sunlight harvester is, is a great thing. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'm not seeing any questions coming in. So, um, Brian, I think we're ready to hand things back to you this morning. Thanks for joining us for AGI SureTrack Coffee Talk. Connect with us on the web at agisuretrackcommunity.com.